My name is David Hershkovitz. I'm the founder of Paper Magazine, and this is Light Culture. Listen, learn, and stay ahead of the curve as I knock heads with cultural disruptors of the past, present, and future. Light Culture is brought to you by Burb, the Vancouver-based cannabis brand. Today, I'd like to take a few minutes to remember Ricky Powell. Back in September 2019, I had Ricky on as a guest on the Light Culture Podcast. He was a perfect choice for a show sponsored by Burb Cannabis, dedicated to cultural disruptors, especially since we had a history going back to the heyday of downtown in the 80s, when the now legendary street photographer was just getting started. He got his break at Paper Magazine when I asked him to shoot party pictures, and he never forgot it. He was a natural at the game, a people person with a chiseled jaw and sly side eye that spoke volumes. He had just enough chutzpah and charm to get the shot and make everyone comfortable while doing it. And he knew who to shoot, not a paparazzi waiting in the bushes for his prey to appear. He was of and by the scene, an insider snapping away as friends and friends of friends partied and played. That those friends ended up being the Beastie Boys, LL Cool J, Debbie Mazar, Natasha Leon, Madonna, Sandra Bernhardt, Jam Master J, KRS-One, Slick Rick, and many, many more iconic figures from those iconic years suggests that he knew a lot more than he let on. We bonded over the 70s New York Knicks, jazz, and those invisible jazz cigarettes that became his trademark. We had a great time in the podcast, as I knew we would, giving and taking in a back and forth that's quintessentially New York. Some 80 shows later, it's still one of my favorites, Vintage Ricky, so you can imagine how I felt when the news reached me. Ricky Powell died in February at the age of 59. He didn't live long enough to enjoy the accolades pouring in for Josh Swade's documentary, Ricky Powell, The Individualist, which was finally screened this year at the Tribeca Film Festival after being postponed because of COVID. In many ways, he was a self-made man, a self-actualizing being who assumed many persona along the way, but he was always quintessentially Ricky a little rough around the edges, but lovable in a shaggy dog kind of way. When you know someone for a long time and watch them evolve, it's sometimes hard to understand the role they play in the lives of those who only know them by reputation, as the photographer immortalized in the Beastie Boys lyric, Homeboy, throw in the towel. Your girl got dicked by Ricky Powell. So be it. Rest in power. Your legacy lives on. Ricky Powell. Cole Kushner is the host of Dissect, a serialized music podcast that geeks out on iconic hip-hop albums, focusing on one song per episode. This unlikely format turned out to be a hit of the podcast world, winning press accolades and attracting devoted listeners. What started out as a passion project for Cole has turned into a career at Spotify, who reached out and offered him the financial support he needed to continue his labor of love. A lifelong musician who played in bands and studied music in college, 
He worked as a creative director before falling in love with podcasts and with the possibility of combining his classical music training with his love of hip-hop. Now in its eighth season, previous episodes have zoomed in on Kendrick Lamar's To Pimp a Butterfly, Beyonce's Black and King, and The Miseducation of Lauryn Hill, among others. His most recent series focuses on Kanye West's Yeezus. So welcome, Cole Kuchna. Oh, thanks for having me. You did yeah. your research. I did a little bit. I like, to, <laughs> I like to be prepared. Not as much as you, though. My God. Yeah. <laughs> it looks like there's a ton of research that goes into what you do. Yeah, that and writing the scripts is majority of the podcast. So let's talk about Kanye, since you're obsessed about not just now, but also other albums. You've done them several times already, right? Yeah, I do. This is the second season on him. Season two was on My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy. And then, yeah, the newest one's on Yeezus, which is the follow-up to Twisted Fantasy. So you open your latest episode talking about Stravinsky's Rites of Spring, which generated riots when it was first performed. Why the comparison to that, as opposed to, say, something more contemporary or pop, like, say, Dylan going electric? Or we do... I. So it's Stravinsky and then Dylan. Dylan is actually. Did you off. mention that? Oh, how did I miss it? Yeah, it's it goes Stravinsky, okay. <laughs> Ride of Spring, and then it goes Dylan going electric, and then it goes Kanye. Jesus. Okay, so that's probably where I got the idea from, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> from your podcast. As as the world turns, it's hard to sometimes remember where things come from. So, do you feel like you were reaching there with the Stravinsky example, or? Dylan, because I don't recall any kind of riots or explosions upon the release of Kanye's records. The world's different now. We react differently. The way I set it up on the show is the reactions came on the internet, which is primarily where people react now in the moment. It's rarely you hear a new album or new piece of music live anymore. Whereas during the Ride of Spring, that was the early 1900s, you can only hear it live. So, of course, you're going to react and it's going to be more physical and stuff then. But now we go to YouTube, we go to Twitter, we go wherever. Anyone that remembers the Yeezus release and that follows hip-hop, follows Kanye, or is just generally a music fan of pop culture, it was a huge reaction, especially at the time. And that was right when I feel like the internet was peaking, where all of people were going to social media for the first time to react to these kind of things in the moment. So... I think it's comparable. I mean, even the Rite of Spring thing is a lot of it's kind of folklore, legend. People don't really know what happened, but there was some controversy whether or not it was a, a full-blown riot. Kind of hard to tell these days. But the point I was trying to make was that each of these artists were in their prime. Each of these artists took a huge artistic risk at the peak of their prime where they could have just rested on their laurels and just did what's got them success to this point, but they chose to, in their own way, you know, essentially flip the script of what people were expecting from them in order to put out something they thought was innovative or just express what they were feeling in the moment. And I saw that parallel between all three of these artists. And it's a parallel that you can see really with any artist that really makes an impact and stands the test of time. Usually they follow the same pattern. You can say the same thing about the Beatles, where they get in the front door with whatever's popular at that time, riding in the style that's popular. Dylan was doing that with folk music. Stravinsky was doing that with more 
typically classical sounding pieces. And Kanye was doing that with his early records were pretty traditional in terms of hip hop. And then they flipped the script. They challenged people. That was the general point I was trying to make. But that was also a critical time in Kanye's own life because he was going off on his manic phase at that time with many of those rants that you capture in the podcast, actually claiming to be Jesus and raising a lot of issues at that time about art and politics and trying to suddenly be this other kind of person who seemed to be oppressed and attacked on the defensive, whereas I'm sure there was tons of praise going on. So, you know, just basically, how do you measure this personal life and, and all the struggles that he's going through with the music itself? Do you separate them or do you feel like it's all one thing? On the show, it depends. With Kanye, because his albums are always about where he is in his life at that time, it usually fuels the music. I feel like it's appropriate to dive into that stuff. It's just why we spent the first episode of the season kind of setting up where he was in life, because it was a direct influence on the sound of Jesus and the content of Jesus and the story arc of Jesus, which was he had just kind of won back the public after My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy. You know, he fell from public grace after the Taylor Swift VMA incident, almost got kind of quote unquote canceled, wins the public back by this amazing record that everyone still to this day loves and many argue is the greatest hip-hop record of all time in Twisted Fantasy. And then the interesting thing to me is that he, after winning back the public, having suicidal thoughts and and really kind of having this identity crisis after that moment, decides to flip the script and purposely turn heel, to use a, a wrestling term. But if you look at what he was doing in his life, it really makes sense. He was trying to break into the fashion world, and in his mind, no one was giving him a chance. Everyone was brushing him aside. He felt like he was alienated from that fashion world. And also him trying to become more of an entrepreneur and get ownership in his brand and things like this. He kept hitting these walls, and he said several times that, I've hit the glass ceiling as a creative, and I'm trying to literally, I'm trying to break these walls down, which is why he was so aggressive in the interviews at that time. He was taking thousands of meetings, according to him, and getting no traction into his creative ideas and specifically his fashion line. And so those interviews, I feel like, in retrospect, were his last resort, where he was trying to do things quietly behind the scenes for years. Like People don't know he was taking unpaid internships at The Gap, unpaid internships at Fendi, trying to legitimately learn fashion from the ground up and still couldn't find backing for his creative ideas. And he went broke. We find out years later that he was some $30 million in debt trying to fund his own ideas, which makes sense in retrospect why he was trying to get backing, because he's literally going broke trying to do it himself. That frustration fueled Yeezus. But then at the same time, it's when he met Kim Kardashian and fell in love and started a family. So you have this dichotomy on one hand, it's this frustration of trying to break these walls down and, and get your creative ideas out there to get people to take you seriously beyond music. But then he has this epiphany with Kim Kardashian. And essentially those two elements is what, if you recognize the story on Yeezus, it's essentially that it's frustration, self-examination, and then finding love at the end. So his life always fuels his music. 
But flash forward today, he's successful businessman, just declared a billionaire, I believe, going wherever he wants, design. He, he has his own complex. Where is it, in Oklahoma or Wyoming? Yeah, Wyoming. It sounds amazing. I love his ideas. I think he's brilliant as an artist in all dimensions. You're focusing on music, but I've seen him talk in different situations and always walked away totally impressed. However, there's the second conversation about art and politics. We know from history there have been great artists who have not really been on the right political side in terms of the way we look at it today. For example, Leni Riefenstahl, Wagner, Louis Ferdinand, Celine. These are people who are highly respected for the work they've done, but shunned politically. And I'm wondering if that's what's in store for Kanye as well, given becoming a Trumpist and moving in that direction. Yeah, the Trump thing's interesting. I'll tell you my personal opinion on it. Because I think, yeah, I mean, you called him a Trumpist, but really all he did was he wore the red hat and he took a meeting with Trump, which people had a, a big issue with. I think he met him once before, or I think it was like right after the presidency. And then he went to the White House and kind of had this infamous rant there. But if you look kind of beyond the headlines and what he was trying to do with the Trump thing, it was one just because I'm black doesn't mean I have to be a Democrat. If you know Kanye, he's always going against the grain and he's always going to challenge the status quo. This is all based on things that he said. So my understanding of the Trump thing was, you can't tell me who to vote for. By the way, he's never voted in his life until he voted for himself in 2020. Like Kanye is not political. He did not know anything about Trump's policies. Admittedly, did not know anything about Trump's policy. He saw Trump as a symbol that was anti-government, that was an outsider, the same way that people that voted for Trump like saw in Trump, which was this outsider that was going to like drain the swamp, quote-unquote. He's gone on record kind of disavowing his support of Trump since then. There's a kind of famous picture of him taking a picture with a fan who had a Trump shirt on, and he's blocking Trump from the shirt. I don't think his support for Trump was anything politically. It was symbolic. If you understand that angle a little bit, you can kind of see why he did it, at least in my own mind. Not that I, I'm saying I agree or, or support it. It's just that's, I think the perception of him being a Trumpist or like actually supporting Trump in his policies is, is not the case. It's just not what he was trying to do. He's not very successful at expressing these kind of ideas, though. He's really clumsy. Even the TMZ thing where he said slavery was a choice is a classic example of him trying to express an idea and just saying it completely wrong and then trying to backtrack later and explain himself. But it's too late. You know, you already put the red hat on. You already said slavery is a choice. That's what people are going to see and understand. And, and rightly so. He just has this record of saying things bluntly and not always the most articulate way. And it gets him in trouble sometimes. So I would not compare him to Wagner. Like Wagner was very adamant anti-Semite. I would not, that's a totally different category to me. 50% of America voted for Trump. So it's not just Kanye, you know, 
it's a complicated issue. We can probably spend the whole podcast oh, yeah, talking totally. about it. And I have spent <laughs> talking about it with other people because it was such a thing for so many people because they did admire his work and they do admire his work and respect what he's accomplished there. However, those were particularly divisive times and the timing, you know, timing wasn't was so awful. much what he was, was saying. Awful. Yeah, it was so yeah. awful. I mean, 2020 was a mess already. And I mean, that happened a little earlier, but even his presidential campaign was a mess and was bad timing. It was bad timing for sure. And yeah, just the animosity everyone felt already, you know, we were looking for people to put it on for the last couple of years. So anyone that fell out of line, got definitely got the lion's share of our animosity. So, But then you have like the turn towards religion after that. The saga continues with Kanye always, you know. So that was an interesting kind of flip when he canceled the tour and went to the hospital and from the outside seemed to have a mental breakdown. And then coming out as bipolar and then the Trump stuff. It's been such a mess for years. I always come back to like, I just hope he figures it out. I hope he's okay in the end. Because speaking of historical figures, it's not like the path that Kanye is on, historically speaking, is the greatest one. All signs would point to early death, tragic death. Doesn't seem out of the question for Kanye. If you look at Prince, Michael Jackson, all these larger-than-life figures, their life seems a little bit in chaos. Like It never seems to end with old age. So I just hope he's always okay in the end because he's given us so much. And what about musically going forward for him? Because he has become a businessman, creative businessman at that, but his music has not held up over the years after the Yeezus to the same extent. And he doesn't seem to be interested in music anymore. Um, I don't know if that's entirely true. He's been working on an album called Donda that was supposed to release last year that got delayed. There's been reports that he's back at work on that album. He scrapped a few albums that were quote-unquote finished that leaked onto the internet. So I know he's working on music. I know he's juggling a lot now, though. He released Jesus as King in, was that twenty late 2019? So, I mean, it hasn't really been all too long, especially considering artists like Kendrick Lamar has, you know, we're going on four years without a new record from him. So I wouldn't say he's not working on music, especially because he produced like seven albums in essentially one summer just a few years ago. And he does have a lot going on and you can feel it in the music a little bit where it's not as polished as it used to be. And it's a little bit shorter than it used to be. But on the other hand, he's grown this multi-billion dollar company in Yeezy. He was recently named the richest black man in U.S. history evaluated at $6 billion. So I understand that he's you know, not totally focused on music when he's got all these other ambitions. And if you know Kanye, those other ambitions are really important to him. He doesn't see himself as a musician. you know. He sees himself as an artist, as a creative. So music is just one outlet and everything else is, I feel like, just as important to him. Right, but to our loss, perhaps, in the long run. I got a great shoe collection because of him. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, I had Steve Smith, his designer, on my show, and we talked a little bit about how that works for him with Kanye mm. on, on one of my uh, earlier podcasts. Well, you mentioned Kendrick Lamar to Pimp a Butterfly, which was your first project in the series. So what attracted you to that story? And did you have any personal issues 
tackling something that was part of, of this other culture, right? The black culture that is not something you grew up with. No, no, definitely. And it's honestly one of the reasons why I chose those works is because I didn't know. Music for me has always been the way that I've learned about life, history, the world. It's always been my portal to all that. One, because I'm passionate and I think you always ingest the most when you're passionate about whatever you're doing. This goes back to me studying classical music in college where you had to write a paper about Beethoven and his life or how his life fueled a piece of music. You're forced to go back in time and research a life that you knew nothing of. It was different age, different country, different era, everything, different you know political systems, all this stuff. So you just get these windows into these people's worlds through the music. And the same things with you know Kendrick Lamar, especially To Pimp a Butterfly, where, yeah, I mean, it's not the world, definitely not the world I grew up in, but it's also took place in my backyard. I'm from California. Los Angeles is less than an hour plane ride from here. So it was striking to me how can someone's experience be so different, yet you're physically so close. And I learned so much through To Pimp a Butterfly and Damn about experiences that are not mine. That to me is what gives you empathy. It gives you understanding, gives you context, history, everything that you need to know, or at least get you on the path to what you need to know to understand some really big issues in our country. And the history, not only the issues we're facing today, but what exactly led us to these dynamics. They didn't just come out of nowhere, right? And so once you understand the context and the history is when you can really get to the root of things. And for me, Kendrick Amar and his story really helped me put that in focus. And it was a personal time for you, as I understand, just had a child, you were working very hard, doing a variety of things, and listening to podcasts as a kind of a side thing, right? While you were carrying a baby around trying to make it go to sleep or whatever the situation was, that particularly busy time in your life opened you up to something new and different. Yeah, that was, I mean, it was definitely personally a really special time just having your, I don't know if you have kids, but you know, the first one's really I special. Do. <laughs> yeah, so you know, I mean, it's a magical time, a really influential time in my life just because having the kid, to be a butterfly coming out literally the day after my first daughter was born. I mean, the genesis of the show is literally me, the first day I got home with my daughter listening to To Pimp a Butterfly on headphones while she was in my arms sleeping. And I know that has something to do with why I chose that record, why I was interested. Just that moment was such a big moment for me personally. And like you said, I was listening to a lot of podcasts during that time because, you know, you sit around with the baby and just kind of want something going on in the background. Everything in that experience culminated into what the show is, you know, a podcast that the first season was about Kendrick Lamar. And essentially, I just was doing what I was doing in college, was writing papers, a paper turned podcast, essentially. And yeah, that was kind of the, the genesis of the show. It's funny because I wonder if you had been listening to something else, you may have wound up doing something totally <laughs> different. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What if you had been listening to Stravinsky? <laughs> yeah, not much commercial appeal. I don't oh, know if I could. okay. <laughs> so you had that in mind as well. Well, not back then, but I know the success of the show is because I'm talking about big current artists that people are interested. The bigger the artist audience the bigger the pool of interested people that wants to listen to a 
13-hour analysis of that person. I don't know how many Stravinsky diehards are out there right now. <laughs> yeah, you might be surprised. Yeah. The internet's a funny place. The, the thing is, you could actually find however number of yeah. them there yeah, are yeah, out yeah. there. Have there been projects that you started and then gave up on? Uh, no, actually. But there's a lot of kind of preliminary research. And if I'm interested in an album, I'll kind of dig into it for a while before I really start to work on it. The concern is, is, is there enough to carry a 13, 15-hour analysis, essentially 100,000-word paper on an album? Not a lot of albums can, in my mind, hold up a season and, and stay interesting. So I'm very sure before I start the real work that there's enough there. So cross my fingers that it doesn't happen because that would really suck if I got far into it and had to stop. It does happen, you know, among writers, for example, novels get abandoned, restarted, taking entirely new directions. There are books that people read in different stages of their life that they reread and it has a totally different meaning for them. They see things that they haven't seen before. They respond to it differently. And that's one of the marks of great literature is that you can keep going back and finding new things. So do you ever go back and listen to some of these records that you've already spent so much time listening to and dissecting and finding out things that you said, oh, shit, I should have, I wish I'd put this in the, in the show? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that's probably only natural. There's going to be things that I miss, even though I'm spending so much time and often working with other people with these records. But they're so dense that you can miss a certain interpretation. The thing that I tend to notice after the fact sometimes is like, oh, there's a connection between song eight and song four. You know, there's this some parallel or some theme that I could have harped on a little bit more. But usually I'm pretty happy with the framework of the show. Whether I get every single detail, that's going to be impossible, especially because it's subjective interpretation as much as I try to be objective about it. I know that it's still me at the end of the day, just listening and interpreting. Social media is great for that, where even today on the recent episode, there's a couple interpretations that people had that I thought were valid. So it's cool to hear other people's perspective. I've definitely liked that aspect about social media where people are able to share like, oh, did you think about this? And that, yeah, like you said, great art what makes it great is that there's enough there for a lifetime, right? One of my favorite things to do is read books at certain periods of my life and see how the interpretation or my understanding of them change. And I think the same thing goes with music, for sure. Art can offer you so much. You just have to give it the time. Right. And, and things that sound revolutionary in their time, going back to Stravinsky, writes of spring today doesn't sound that yeah. wild at all. It's funny, I was just talking to someone yesterday, I was listening to the Beatles. He's older than me and grew up with the Beatles, and he was just telling me about his dad saying, you know, I wouldn't cross the street to shake their hand. People thought they're controversial and how weird that sounds now, listening to the Beatles, and it's this kind of uppity, <laughs> very harmonized, polished sound. If they are getting controversy because they're kind of new or whatever, it's interesting how time changes things. And... uh what were they? They had no idea. They thought the Beatles were controversial 
they had no idea what was coming next because... Well, they were usually controversial. <laughs> One of the things people talk about that's different between then and now is that the audience was very focused on a few things. There wasn't so many things going on. Yeah. When the Beatles went on the Ed Sullivan show for the first time, and I remember watching that at home with my parents because we only had one TV and you would sit in the living room and we'd always watch the Ed Sullivan show. And that was in a major event of our time. And yeah, people were fighting over it, families breaking up over it. But, you know, in, the, in retrospect, I think what was really the issue was the long hair. You know, very yeah. often it comes down to the cultural part of, of what uh, is being presented as opposed to the music. The music, as you said, was very easygoing, mainstream, in fact, today. There was hardly a curse word, you know, it was never, yeah. <laughs> nobody ever said anything offensive. But yet it had somehow just galvanized the yeah. youth of America or the world. So it became part of the youth revolution mm -hmm. that was basically put Frank Sinatra and those people in, in the rearview mirror yep. and changed the world. And plus all of the bands that followed from the British invasion and suddenly mm -hmm. that's all there was yeah. out there. And so how do you start? Do you have a list right now of albums that you're thinking about? There's definitely a short list albums that I would I'd personally like to do, albums that get requested from listeners a lot. I try to see where those two align because I can't really do an album if I don't love it. And I also shouldn't probably do an album that no one wants to listen to. So I usually try to find something that aligns both of those. And then from there, it's just a lot of research, a lot of listening, everything's scripted. But before I even get to that point, you know, there's a couple of weeks of just browsing the internet, listening to interviews, basically collecting all the data I can about the record, about the artist, and just really understanding who they are, where they were at their life, everything that went into the album. And once I have that, I actually get into the process, which is just listening to whatever song I'm talking about a lot. I try to figure out how to play it so I can talk about any theory stuff that might be interesting. And then you want know, to get to the first lyric on the page, discuss it, write the second lyric, discuss it and it's like a very linear process of course you're looking for connections and trying to lay things out usually the albums that i pick have an overarching narrative so i'm trying to walk people through that part because a lot of people don't listen to music as if they're stories and usually the albums that i pick are pretty clearly narrative albums so i'm trying to kind of set the audience up for that it's a lot of work i would say every script is about five to six thousand words and there's usually about 15 episodes per season. So you can do the math on that in terms Maybe of- five to 6,000 per episode? Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of writing involved, a lot of research. The production part's the easy part. Most of the work is in the scripts and the thinking and the writing. It's literally what I used to do in college. It's what I love to do in college. I was the kid in class that got the essay assignment and started the first day rather than putting it off till the very end. I just always loved- writing about music and thinking and researching about music. It's a dream job for me now. Is Nipsey Hussle somebody that interests you? Generally speaking, for sure. Tragic tragic story, but also inspirational in what he did when he was here. I haven't really thought too much about doing him as a season, but there is another podcast. I don't know if they've revealed, so I probably shouldn't say what the podcast is, but there is a podcast coming about Nipsey. 
and I know that's going to be really good. So I'm I'm looking forward to that because his story is definitely really inspirational. Yeah, Rob Kenner, who wrote the biography, is going to be a guest on the upcoming show. And it's a great book, and it really helped me understand the work of Nipsey Hussle in terms of just rap and just a community and, and vision yeah. and writing. You know, I, I think it's it's one of those that stands out. I would be interested in something like that. Do you find it harder to find albums that fit all your needs, all your categories, check off your boxes? I definitely have done the ones that are most obvious to me, not to say that I've ran out or anything, but the other thought is like, do I stay with hip hop the whole time or do I start to branch out into other genres? That's still kind of a question I'm wondering about, but I still think there's plenty, but the majority of the albums in my mind couldn't withstand a season and be interesting. So there is a limited supply. When that runs out, I'm not sure. But the good thing is I can only really do two albums a season. It's not like I'm doing one a week or something like that. So I think it'll be good for the near future. And the options to do more with each story, because once you've accumulated all this material, you have interviews, you have totally researched and absorbed it, to turn it into some other form like Song Exploder, which was a show about a particular song. Each episode was one song. They talk the whole story about that. Is that something that appeals to you? Yeah, I think format innovation definitely could be on the horizon. I'm working on another show that'll be out in the summer that's in the same vein as Dissect, but not about hip-hop. I've started to do some video content that we've been putting on YouTube because I would love to explore the visual medium someday. Song Exploder got a Netflix series. I think something could be done with the dissect approach in a visual format. So I'm kind of practicing right now, and that's been really fun. There seems to be an audience for people that are interested in about the stories behind music. You know, there's just great stories waiting to be told that we don't always have access to a format to, to hear them, but I think people are interested in them and the success of Song Exploder is a great example of people being hungry to learn about those things. So hopefully with podcasting growing and more podcasts being turned into TV series, I would love to do that one day for sure. And at Spotify, so do you do other things besides work on your show? It's primarily Dissect and now this other show. But yeah, I've done some pilots of other shows behind the scenes that didn't end up going to series. There's a UK version of Dissect called Decode that's going to be the first spinoff of Dissect, and they're going to be focusing on UK artists, which is really cool. A new host, new team, everything. They took the premise Dissect and made it their own. More stuff like that, expanding the brand. I try to think about Dissect as its own little franchise and how can we expand upon this idea that had some success and take it to the next level. I understand that you went to music school, but you didn't really know anything about music, that you'd played in <laughs> bands. Yeah. You knew how to play some instruments, but you didn't really know anything about theory or even reading music or writing music. That's brave. <laughs> well, naive, actually. <laughs> it really <laughs> was at the often time. Often goes together, those two words. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it, all my quote-unquote bravest moments have, in retrospect, been out of just, I didn't know any better. <laughs> I just thought I could do it when I probably shouldn't have thought that. The college thing's kind of funny. When I went to college for music, I went late. I think I started when I was 24. 
But up until that point, I was playing in bands and was self-taught musician and touring and doing all that kind of stuff. But I kind of hit a wall in my creativity where I felt like I needed help in furthering my own creative abilities. So going to college seemed like the, the right next step. But yeah, to go from no lessons to college level training, I totally underestimated what that would entail. I kind of snuck into the program, which is a good program. I auditioned with my own composition. So it hid the fact that I didn't know how to read music all that well. <laughs> you can practice your own piece and you wrote it so you know it and you can you can play it pretty well. But once I got in, it was like a total nightmare trying to figure out the most elementary, rudimentary aspects of music theory and, and even just reading music properly. At the same time, keeping up with college-level theory courses, I almost dropped out the first semester. It was probably the most stressful time of my entire life. But it's funny because it ties into dissect. It's the way that I kind of fast-forwarded my education and caught up was, I don't know if you know the great courses. Yes. Mm -hmm. Online. There's these, yeah. yeah, fantastic. Before podcasting took off, it was kind of podcasting before podcasting, but essentially what they are is college-level courses you can download, not for credit, but just take on your own time. And there's a great series of courses about music taught by Dr. Robert Greenberg. And I essentially downloaded every single one and just binge them for months. I was using those to give myself some foundation in theory, but also just music history and everything. I really feel like without those, I would have dropped out. I would have failed for sure, but made it through. Ended up really loving it, falling in love with classical music. And really, those great courses is what I modeled Dissect after, because it would be one course about Beethoven, and every lecture would be its own episode about a piece, or sometimes one lecture would just be about one movement of one piece. And so it was this long-form education broken up into these little lectures, which is exactly what I do on Dissect. So it was literally the genesis of the show. The format of the show comes from those great courses. Well, we're fortunate that you have watched the great courses and that <laughs> the courses have existed. And today we can listen to your version of that with Dissect and Really appreciate it. It's a great show. Thank you, Cole Kushner, for being on the Light Culture Podcast. Yeah, thank you. It was fun. You've been listening to Light Culture. You can find us at shopverb.com, Light Culture, or at Light Culture Podcast. Thanks again to Burb. You can follow them at shopverb on Instagram. And don't forget to subscribe to and review the show. If you would like to get in touch, reach out to me directly at David Reporting. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.